Hello, 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 and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hilary Lombard, and this is our first episode back after our fall hiatus, and I am pumped! While we were on hiatus, things got really spicy in Congress, especially around infrastructure, which is disappointing for a lot of people, myself included, because it looked like we were cruising towards a legislative hole-in-one. We had bipartisan support, public support, it looked like a win. And a win that was going to help a lot of people. And really just pull our country's infrastructure into the 21st century. But then, to keep this golf metaphor going, Joe Biden hit his bipartisan infrastructure deal into a sand trap. The sand trap in this situation is the giant social spending bill that Democrats are trying to pass through budget reconciliation. Progressives have said that they will not vote for the bipartisan infrastructure deal unless they also get that larger $3.5 trillion social spending bill. I'm not going to get too far into the politics of that because that is a topic for another episode, but what I do think is really interesting is that Democrats have been referring to both bills as infrastructure bills, even though one deals with roads, bridges, and other hard infrastructure, and the other includes things like childcare, education, and healthcare. And I think that that really raises the question, how should we talk about infrastructure? How should we define it? What is included? What isn't? Has the definition evolved to include these social welfare programs, or is it still planes, trains, and automobiles? And while I could go on a walk and ruminate on that and try to figure out my answer, I am much more interested to know what other Americans think, right? Like, how do they define it? Do they think we should pass both bills? Do they think that we should pass no bills? Do they care about infrastructure at all? Luckily, our guest today is going to help me sort through all of that. She is the executive director of Civic Genius and the proud owner of one of the coolest names in politics, Jillian Youngblood. Cue the hype music. Now, Jillian's a pretty big deal. She has more than 15 years of experience in politics, government, and communications. She's focused her entire career on democracy reform, public health, and education policy, three things that we love here. She even worked on Capitol Hill as an aide to Representative Jerry Nadler. She was the lead staffer on the 9-11 Health and Compensation Act, and she managed New York City's federal and state legislative portfolios on public health under the Bloomberg administration. She's got the resume, guys. Anyway, Jillian's organization, Civic Genius, is part of a coalition that organized events to get groups of Americans together to talk about infrastructure and see if they could find any common ground. So today, we're going to chat with her about that event and the findings that came out of it, as well as a broader conversation about what it takes to build consensus, why it's important to have conversations about tough topics, and how people actually think about policy. Now, if I stopped right there, you'd be in for a great episode. But since this is our first episode back, I wanted to bring something extra special. Today's episode also features audio from the discussion group Conversations on Infrastructure. So you'll get to hear for yourself what your fellow citizens think about the issue that has been dominating our news cycle for months. All right, guys, sit down and buckle up. Mod Pod is back, baby. Let's get started. Hello there. Hey! friend how's it going buddy it's going pretty good i feel like at this point we're like borderline in a long distance relationship for how often i'm emailing you and likewise (laughs) you are a breath of fresh air in my inbox i can say that 
definitively. Okay, so let's just kick this thing off by talking about your event, America Talks Infrastructure. Why don't we start off with you telling us a little bit about it and how the event went? It was great. So it was a partnership of six organizations, actually. We had people from across the country, uh, across the political spectrum, across, across the range of ages. I think uh, participants ranged in age from 21 to 64. People showed up with a lot of different backgrounds, varying degrees of familiarity with the topic. Um, they got 30 minutes of an introduction on what we were going to be talking about. We had a little kind of light touch discussion guide. Um, so, you know, some people follow that. Some people are like, I don't need the discussion guide. I know exactly what I want to talk about. And this was all online. So using this platform that we were on, people went into discussion groups of six to eight people and they just talked through all the pros and cons. And they talked about what infrastructure actually means to them in their lives. I mean, I think the definition of infrastructure as it is in this particular bill is sort of the majority of it is is roads and bridges and structures and those types of things. Well, here in Fairbanks, um, one of the things that's actually a bigger issue here for us is communications. We have a um, difficult situation trying to figure out, you know, how to grow and have enough housing for people that keep cost of living lower. And um, just there's lots of things going on right now in our area. And so I just feel like it, you know, it directly impacts like our daily lives every single day, the traffic. I mean, it's just a, it's a huge part of every single part of our day. So I think, you know, for a topic like infrastructure, it's not like abortion yeah healthcare where people are like oh yeah i'm gonna show up and talk about that it's a little bit more like okay infrastructure what exactly are we talking about here so the first phase of the conversations was really just clarifying what this means to people so do you have like a wild traffic backup in your mm -hmm. community that could be solved by a roundabout do you have like a dangerous stretch of road because it's not well maintained do you live in a rural area that doesn't have broadband. So you'd like to take your small business online, but you can't do it because your internet's not fast enough. Um, you know, do you have let, like, do you live in a community that has lead pipes and that has negative health impacts on your kids? So you, you know, have been buying bottled water for the last 15 years. Like all of these things that really matter in your daily life are under this kind of boring sounding umbrella of we're going to pass a $1.2 trillion infrastructure <laughs> bill and it may or may not be tied to a larger reconciliation bill. Wah, wah. So it's just like, what is, like people don't think about policy in terms of that. People think about policy in terms of what is affecting their lives. In fact, the vast majority of Alaska is still 3G, except for the big cities, Juneau, Anchorage, and Fairbanks. So here we have 4G, but only if you're in a certain place. Uh, at our house, we do not have 4G. Uh, we don't even have a cell signal. I have to do um, cell calls over my um, internet here at my house. So um, that is really our big issue. What affects us here the most, it's, it's that communications ability. I live in a bunch of different places. I've lived in Chicago and live in Orlando now. I grew up in north of Philadelphia. So I think if you look at Chicago, they have a great public transportation system. I took the train in every day. It worked very well. And you get down here to Orlando and it's kind of a mess getting around because there is now no, not very much public transportation, although they're trying to make it better. As someone that lives in New York, one of the things that impacts me a lot about infrastructure is the fact that I feel that the infrastructure that 
serves my city was meant for a much smaller city. Uh, our subway system was built, you know, like a hundred plus years ago. Uh, the uh, design of the roads, many of the bridges were built at a time uh, when, uh, you know, 20 million people weren't in our metropolitan area. And so uh, more and more people come to the city and it's difficult to share a subway system that's meant to take, you know, 50,000 people from place to place when it's dealing with, you know, 10 times as many people. So people spent some time just talking about why this issue matters to them. And then they spent some time talking about, you know, who ought to pay for all of this stuff. So should the government spend $1.2 trillion? Should the government spend, talking about the federal government here, uh, should they spend more? Should they spend much less? Should this be public-private partnerships? Like, what's the right way to address this? My name is Michelle. I think that Working in a bipartisan fashion was something I was very excited to see. I think we just need to keep setting a great example in this fashion. And I'm very happy to see the work has continued, even among all the other things that have gone on. And as far as the infrastructure piece goes, um, this first piece the Senate has sent to the House is really good core stuff that we've got a lot of agreement on, and we can really make progress. And... I don't want to see that held hostage for something else that is much more contentious, um, or for anything for that matter, ever. Uh, each bill should be on its own merit decided, is this good for us or not? And this makes a difference to us now, because my family will be affected uh, if this doesn't happen for at least a year, uh, versus if it could happen in six months, or if it doesn't happen for three years. This is huge to us. The thing that I love about groups this size is that everybody can see everyone's faces. Everyone's done a little get to know you. And people, even if you've got people with sort of, I don't want to say like fringe or extreme, but if you've got people who have like really strong views that are clearly on one side of the spectrum, everybody moderates pretty quickly. And that doesn't necessarily mean that people like leave their values at the door and decide that they were wrong and they're gonna like come into this magical, you know, Kumbaya. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Polarization is over. Polarization is over. <laughs> We solved it. People still have their opinions, but you hear the way that someone else describes this. So you show up like not having thought about lead pipes as a part of infrastructure, because what you care about is roads and bridges. And then you're like, oh, well, you seem nice and <laughs> you seem normal and smart. And that sounds like a real problem. So yeah, I'm willing to put that in the mix as we think about how much we're going to spend on this. I don't want you to be slowly poisoned by lead. You <laughs> yeah. seemed nice. <laughs> Exactly. I think it's so crazy how nice people are when you get them in like a group, like a small group and it's like, okay, you have to listen to me and then I'm going to listen to you. It goes back to elementary school rules. Be nice to your neighbor. Don't interrupt. And that's just crazy because on Twitter, it's like, oh, my neighbors would firebomb my house, I think, based on the level of hate. But when you actually get a small group together, everybody's so nice. It's so true. There's, um, we actually just did a video on this called, um, about something called the perception gap. So the perception gap is something it's, it's basically the belief that the other side, the other, I'm doing air quotes for listeners. The other side is more hostile to your beliefs than is actually the case. 
And the research around this, I just think is totally wild. So there's a really good report by a group called More in Common from 2019 um, that just produced some really great data on this. Um, so on average, they found that Democrats and Republicans believed that 55% of their opponents' views are extreme. In reality, about 30% were. So this is to say like, yeah, there are people with extreme views. This is true. Like, do we agree on everything? Obviously not, but it's not nearly as bad as everyone thinks it is. Um, and they found that people who post about politics on social media show a much bigger perception gap than those who don't. So like your hunch is right. The thing that you're seeing in your life is true. So you, it's like, we know who's on Twitter. We know who's sharing all this crazy stuff on Facebook. And then, but in your life, you know that you're mostly not talking to people like that, but where in your media ecosystem are they represented? Um, and that's really something that we want to try to get at with this. Like, what's a platform we can use to elevate moderate thinkers, to elevate oh. bridgers? Of my own heart. <laughs> We did a couple of events about policing and police reform, and it's like very easy to make a sign that says defund the police, or it's very easy to like do a thin blue line, mm -hmm. you know, sign or wear a t-shirt. And it's a lot harder to be like, I think that we should rationalize the way that public safety operates in our communities and potentially <laughs> reallocate some funding to social services, but let's be really thoughtful about it. And yeah. there's no like, way to do that on Twitter, right? Or you can, but you're not, like I've tried to do that on Twitter. Nobody is retweeting it. <laughs> People aren't there for it. People are not there for it. Um, so that's the kind of venues that we wanna provide. And like the hypothesis was that people would wanna show up and talk really respectfully. And they did. We did not host this to advocate for any piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. And people did not show up and say, I feel like this is not a venue where I can't express myself. This feels like a venue where I have to be really like kind of toe this centrist line. Like people show up thinking whatever they think and they show up and say whatever they want to say. Um, but they say it in a way that is from their own experience, which I can't deny what your experience was, right? If that if that's the way that you're living in your life, then that's the way you're living in your life. Um, and people hear that. So we give a couple of guidelines at the beginning of these discussions. We talk about speaking from your own experience, connecting with respect. Oh, there's a third one. Hillary, what's the third one? I'm pretty sure it's don't be an asshole. It's basically don't be a jerk. And it, it you know, it works because when you frame it that way, um, it's really, really hard to firebomb the conversation. Yeah. Um, we have guardrails in place on the platform in case that happens, but it's never happened. We used to run this program called the Citizen Panel Initiative um, with an organization called Voice of the People, and um, their, their executive director is based out of the University of Maryland. So we did, um, I won't go into too much detail about it, but he does this fascinating polling that shows all of these different issues where majorities of Republicans and Democrats disagree. Um, and he's been doing this work for a couple of years. The last I checked, he was at like 150 something proposals. Wow. And some of them are pretty sassy. Some of them are like, <laughs> there should be a path to citizenship. Some of them, um, you know, I can, I can show you ones that would trend left and would trend right. So mm -hmm. there should be a path to citizenship. Also, we should increase 
the retirement age for social security because we need to be more fiscally responsible about social security. So across the board, these things where across the political spectrum, Republicans, Democrats, independents agree, Congress could potentially just grab those issues and say, oh, wow, there's huge majority support for this. But Congress isn't doing that. I mean, they're not they're not getting majority support for issues like this. There, I mean, there are things that should be broadly popular and they can't seem to reach an agreement. I mean, like, if I'm honest, people can't even really reach an agreement with their family at the dinner table on Thanksgiving. So I guess, what do you think that your discussion groups are getting right that so many people so often are getting wrong when it comes to talking about things like this? When you're able to base the discussion in where people have common ground, everyone is immediately disarmed. And now you're having a really different conversation. Mm -hmm. And you might walk away feeling like, okay, we certainly didn't get to a hundred on that, but we got to 60. Like when, you know, how often do you see your legislators like passing bills where they agreed on 60% of stuff that would be, that sounds like a functioning legislature to me. I I will give it to you. I think that listening to your groups you see the ability to agree on 60 percent in that discussion there seemed to be big support for infrastructure overall big support for bipartisanship and even when they disagreed it was fairly respectful this is michael i would agree with everything that everyone said because it affects all of us as they say you know high tide raises all boats i do think infrastructure first of all is something that we they can be bipartisan on uh, more so than a lot of other subjects right now. I think also, you know, I think it's necessary because just in this group alone, we've seen, you know, all these people talking about different things from different, they're from different parts of the United States. And, and I think that in something like this with infrastructure and really any other political topic, a lot of times you need the background and understanding of what's going on in all the different areas of the United States. And when we have bipartisanship, that means that they are actually bringing all these different backgrounds and bringing it together and saying, hey, this is what's going on in my area and not just simply thinking about, oh, is this what my political party wants? But they're thinking, oh, is this, will this help the citizens in my area? That's, that's how I see bipartisanship on this particular um, topic. Um, because it is so vital to every single American. And, you know, we have, as we know, we saw in Flint, Michigan, like, I mean, they had some major issues and those type of things should not be happening in in America. And um, I just think, you know, this is a very important, I think that my, I want them to focus on that and not on, you know, the politics of it necessarily. This is Will Newman. I think that in an ideal world, uh, there would be, bipartisan agreement, uh, but I perhaps am jaded or my experience has not led me to, to prioritize bipartisanship. Uh, you know, if I really believed that the Republican Party cared about uh, infrastructure and getting things done, uh, then I would say that it, the two parties should work together to, you know, accomplish things like building bridges and repairing trains uh, and uh, promulgating Internet. If I could make one wish to Congress, it would be not to wait for uh, bipartisan agreement. Uh, and instead, once there's the, uh, you know, the votes to get things done, to get them done, uh, instead of waiting for a bipartisan deal that either will never happen 
or will be designed to be inadequate uh, to frustrate people's hopes and Democrats and then you know take power away from them. We started to see that, um, you know, we experiment with all kinds of programs that get people to communicate and talk across differences. There are a lot of people who have no interest in talking about issues, but there are a lot of people who say, I don't want to show up to just talk. I want to show up to solve a problem. So we're like, what can we create for those people? And we started to see that this bipartisan infrastructure bill really seemed to have some juice. And Mm -hmm. we looked at the public polling on it and started to see that the public polling showed that there was a lot of agreement, even if there wasn't total agreement on how much to spend or how we should pay for it or exactly what should be included. People were generally saying seems like our bridges and roads and some other stuff like our dams and water systems could use some kind of upgrade. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is more progress than we are making on a lot of other issues. So we started to say, how can we lift up what's happening here? How can we lift up that there's bipartisan movement happening in communities and in Congress? And how can we encourage more of that kind of collaboration? So that's how this event was born. Um, And I loved it. I really want to do more of them on on different issues. We got great feedback. I think 98% of people said that they would do it again. Oh, um, wow. Pretty good. That's awesome. (laughs) Great job. And I kind of feel like if we, I mean, I don't want to just stop there, but I do feel like if we just stopped there, it would turn the volume down. Um, And we put this together really, really quickly. So it was a total group effort. The coalition really came through. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody got the word out to their own members and their own audiences in their own different ways, using their own different voices. So it was just very cool that when we had, um, and I can talk more about the broader um, infrastructure effort in a second, but it's just very cool that all these groups came together and sort of brought, you know, what they're good at um, and made it happen. Everyone did their own thing and we all landed at the same place. <laughs> okay. Which is that people generally want to see some kind of infrastructure bill passed mm-hmm. and they're willing to spend, you know, some money on it and they all, I shouldn't say they all, there was a lot of agreement on how we should pay for it. So for example, a lot of people said they wanted to use unused COVID relief funds to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Very sensible, right? All of these things where on Twitter, you would never get here, mm-hmm. but when you're all sitting together, you're like, oh, there's unused money. Yeah, we could <laughs> use that. Yeah, I love that. Um, so it was great. I um, I really hope that, that we can keep it going. I'm curious. Um how people felt about a gas tax because I know that's how we used to pay for infrastructure but these days I feel like you'd have to pry it from our cold dead hands you know it's funny that you say that we did not talk about it explicitly Mm -hmm. but I believe there is bipartisan support for increasing the gas tax I'm gonna check that for you but I'm almost positive I'm almost positive that the original Republican infrastructure plan had an increase in the gas tax. They must not live in California. (laughs) Um, It's pretty real there. Yeah. Oh, my God. I pay like a billion dollars for a gallon of gas. It's just everything. I'm paying off the national debt every time I fill up my car. Your nation thanks you. All right, guys, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, Jillian and I are going to dive into why infrastructure seems to be the only issue that anybody can agree on what it takes to build consensus, and the importance of having hard conversations and finding common ground when you do. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. Hey guys, it's Jillian from Civic Genius. 
Our goal over here is to overcome political polarization, which might sound impossible or even silly, but here's the thing. Americans actually agree on a lot more than you might think. And that's not just my opinion. I can give you the data showing it to be true. I hope you'll check us out at ourcivicgenius.org and sign up for our newsletter. That's how you can find out about opportunities to problem solve with people in your community across the political spectrum, or a workshop on how to write a killer op-ed, or a Q&A with a congressional staffer on how things actually get done. Obviously, we don't agree on everything, but we absolutely have enough common ground to solve some big problems. Visit ourcivicgenius.org to learn more. And now, back to our show. So I guess I want to zoom out a little bit. Why do you think that infrastructure is the issue that we're able to get bipartisan agreement on? Yeah. So I think that it's almost like policy exists in two different silos. So there's the conversation about it where you know your partisan angle on the issue before you even know anything about that issue. Yeah. Because it can be hard if you don't know anything about an issue, you're looking for guideposts as to what someone like me thinks about this. And that is the way that you land in, here's what people like me think about this. Based on like social signaling and social media and nothing real necessarily. And then you have, how does this issue function in my actual life? And for a lot of issues, it can be difficult to know that. So if you want to talk about something like, you know, the cost of healthcare, like, oh my God, where do we start with this one? It can be very difficult to read about a policy change or a proposed policy change and understand what it means for you and understand what it means for other people and understand what it's contingent on. Like these are difficult things. And I get a little frustrated every time I read something that's like three out of four Americans can't even name the three branches of government. Like that is true. And civic education in this country (laughs) is a travesty and we should do a lot better. Um, But also like the stuff is really complicated and people don't have a lot of venues to, you know, to, put their knowledge into practice. So Mm -hmm. I just think that the way we talk about everybody, it's like, you're dumb and you suck. And that's why the country is going badly. It's like, well, you know, maybe we could give people opportunities to learn and engage and, you know, um, reach out to their members of Congress or their state assembly members or whatever. So why do I think that infrastructure was a great place to start? On the one hand, it is the least sexy name for an event that I've ever run, (laughs) like come to a dialogue about infrastructure, Um, but people instinctively get it. So I live in the Seattle area. Um, My friend who grew up here was joking that Seattle's motto is, we're getting light rail soon. which is true. Like we've, I think we just moved to this neighborhood and we're getting light rail, I think in 2024, I care about it more than anything because the traffic is really bad here. Okay. And so if you're like, if you want to talk to me about infrastructure, I'm like, Oh, does this mean light rail? Is this the thing where it won't take as long for me to get into the city? That would be great. I will talk about that all day long. Yeah. If you live in California, you want to talk about water, right? Yeah, I do. I was just going to say water storage. That is suddenly my issue. Yes, water. I did not know the phrase water storage. Like mm-hmm. I had to, I had to look up and see what water storage meant. You know, I'm again, I'm really into this. If I'm reading an article that references water storage, I'm like, okay, I'm out. I don't, 
Yeah. Water store. Like, does that mean my septic? Like, what are we talking about here? It's like, okay, we're talking about dams. We're talking yeah. about the way that we manage water. Um, so again, I think all of the, it's just like every one of these points is a place where a person can disengage. So I think that, yeah, infrastructure turned out to be such a good issue because people just really understand what it means for their lives. And everyone's mm-hmm. got, if you drive, you've got a stretch of road that you know, is a little dangerous and you'd like to see it fixed up. You've got a bridge that, you know, is 10 years past its useful life. Everyone was able to bring their own experience of what this means. If you live in Flint, Michigan, you know what your water is like, and you know that you're not the only community with water like that. Um, So there's really something for everyone to, to grab onto. And I think that if you're talking to, you know, there are some people who really think the government can solve problems. There are some people who think that the government can do nothing right and should stay out of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you want to bring those two sides into one room together, infrastructure is one of those things where pretty much everyone is going to say, okay, it makes sense that we should have a government yeah. <laughs> that has something yeah. to do with, you know, fixing bridges or like maintaining roads. Like it's, there's nothing too, too controversial in there. Um, certainly there are people who I guess would say, you know, we should privatize the entire transportation system. And I'd love to talk to those people too. I hope they come. Um, but it's a place where there's just automatically a lot of common ground. Um, if you, I lived in New York city for a long time. If you live there and take the subway, it's like you and everybody else takes the subway. Like you are as in it together as you can be. Um, they're just, it's just such a, such a good issue. Um, it's just such a good issue because it, it impacts everything you, you do. Like if you, if you use a wheelchair, you know, the quality of every stretch of sidewalk in your life, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. or if you use a stroller, you know, mm-hmm. that, um, there's just things that people can connect to really quickly. Um, you know, and for that reason, people ended up being really engaged once they, they had an opportunity to say, oh, we're talking about that. Okay. We did a dialogue, I guess, last fall, kind of mid pandemic. So this was still in 2020. Um, we did a small group conversation on childcare. So we had a group of about 15 parents who were really diverse, um, in terms of income race. Uh, they're mostly, mostly from the Northeast. So New York state and Ohio and a little Pennsylvania, um, really diverse in terms of education level. And we started off as kind of a focus group. So people were just telling us here, you know, here are the problems we're having. Like here's what's so difficult right now because our daycare is closed and there's no school. And then sometimes daycare is open, but then it closes because there's been a COVID exposure Mm -hmm. and like, I don't know how I'm going to keep my job. And this is just impossible. And then we got into a part of the discussion where I talked through some potential um, policy ideas that could maybe help people. So I asked things like, would it, would you guys find it useful if your employers provided more, um, telemental health services, which I thought was maybe a cool idea. And a lot of companies were offering that kind of thing at the time. And a hundred percent of people in the group were like, I don't have time for that. Thanks. <laughs> like, when am I do? do I have a half an hour to myself at night? I'm going to sit in a dark room yeah. and watch the bachelor yeah. like, telemental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, was that getting out? Not really. I asked, um, has anyone here taken advantage of the three months of paid family leave that's in the most recent COVID recovery bill? Two people knew about it and they both had PhDs. None of our single moms knew about it. None of our low and moderate income participants knew about it. 
And that's just an example of where I really started to understand that people don't think about policy in terms of policy. They think about policy in terms of what's going on in their life and how this is going to help them or hurt them, which is completely fair and rational. I think that speaks to a huge problem that I think we see all the time with how we talk about policy. Like we want to fight about it so much until you pass it. And once you do, I think that communicating like, okay, we've passed it here's how it benefits you. I think that communication at that level is poor. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really true. And it speaks to a kind of bigger issue in terms of it's, it speaks to a bigger issue of constituent communication and engagement in general. So I think, you know, however you feel about Congress, there are a lot of members of Congress who are there to do what they think is the right thing. And they really did go there to do good and help people. And it is really difficult <laughs> to spend, to have meaningful conversations with the people that you represent. It becomes this kind of bureaucratic chore that mm -hmm. like you get a letter and you want to be responsive. So you've got to respond in some way, but you have 750,000 constituents on average, um, up from what at the beginning of the country, like 20,000 should fact check that. I mean, I can't speak to what it was at the founding, but I can say that in like 1910, it was around 200,000 citizens per one representative. And now it's at 747,000, I believe, which is an insane increase. Okay, perfect. So you've got, you know, three quarters of a million people who you're supposed to respond to all the time. Your staff budget, I can promise you, has not gone up. In fact, it has gone down. Yeah, it's like a dollar fifty. It's right. You have like yeah. nothing to work with here. Mm -hmm. So, and then you want to show your constituents that you care. So you're trying to do the, the highest touch things possible. So you hold maybe a tele, a tele town hall, which is great. Like, thank you for holding town halls. Please keep doing that. Um, but what kind of quality interaction can you really have at a town hall? Mm -hmm. Like raise your hand if you've been to a town hall and you're <laughs> like, great, that was platitudes and screaming and I'm yeah. leaving. And there are members of Congress who, you know, don't want to engage in a meaningful way, but they also just don't really have the resources to do it. So there are some efforts underway to improve the way that constituent communications happens. And we're part of those efforts. And I'm really enthusiastic about it. But I think you're right. Like, do you feel that you have a relationship with your member of Congress or with your state senator? Like, this is the place where you should just go get really involved in your town council, like something that you can wrap your arms around, mm -hmm. something that is close to home. I shouldn't talk about Congress as if it's the only um, the only place where you matter. But yeah, locally, they're so much more likely to actually listen to you and get on your problem. Totally. I, I love local government so much. <laughs> Big local government nerd here as well. Yes. It is a great place to start. Um, we're doing an event coming up on October 28th with a guy named David Toscano, who's the former majority leader of the House of Delegates in Virginia. And he basically says, Congress is so polarized that you're not going to see anything get done. But there is some pretty interesting stuff happening at the state level. And mm -hmm. if you care and you want to see things happen, like that's where the interesting bipartisan work is getting done right now. And it has a bigger impact on your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. It's a big, it's a big country. Um, and even when you pass something at the federal level, like if it's funding, a lot of that funding is being distributed by states. So mm -hmm. go talk to your governor, um, go talk to your state legislators. I agree. I think that there's a lot of good work being done at the state level and the local level. But I mean, truthfully, even at the federal level. So, or but I guess it's hard when no one really knows about it. You know, like we. Again, we're, we're focusing the conversation 
on the wrong things, not actually implementing change, just fighting for it. And it really just comes down to constituent communication being a real weak spot for policymakers. Yeah, that's right. Communication is a weak spot. Um, And I think it's not, I think it's often not because legislators aren't trying. It's because there's nothing, like the system is not built for them to do a good job there. Um, so yeah, you pass something and then your best chance is you send out an e- an e-newsletter and you're like, the thing that I mentioned eight months ago, we finally passed. And I know we're all very tired and, you know, and then you just never have a great conversation about implementation. Right. I think that that also goes to credit and blame too. It's like you have legislators that work really, really hard for something and they actually do get it passed. And it's something that could maybe it could make a noticeable increase in their constituents quality of life, but the constituents don't ever know about it. And if they do, then their legislator doesn't really get credit for it because it's just like that's not who's administering the change, you know. And then come election time, the constituents are mad because they don't feel like the legislator did anything for them. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think a lot of it, I, I'm always loath to blame the media. Like I have a lot of close friends who are journalists. Mm-hmm. I am a huge and enthusiastic booster and subscriber of a lot of publications. But I do think that political journalism makes a lot of this stuff very horse racy in a way that's mm-hmm. just not useful for anyone. Um, and I wish I could think of the headline. Uh, I wish I could think of the headline I saw the other day. But it's just really frustrating how many headlines are about who's winning and losing. Like if, you know, there's a federal mask mandate. So the headline should be, let's talk about what this means and why this is a good or a bad idea. And instead the headline is like, is this good or bad for President Biden? Yes, Biden humiliated in Afghanistan or Biden's failure in Afghanistan. I'm like, America is in Afghanistan. Exactly. And I don't want to imply that that's an unfair take. Like someone should feel free to write whatever they, um, to write that opinion piece, absolutely. But right, it's like what... This is to your earlier point, this is like, well, where do you, if you haven't been paying attention closely to this for 20 years, none of these recent headlines are going to help you understand what's going on and make good choices about who you want to vote for. It's also like, and I know that I'm probably the millionth person to comment on this, so strap in for a hot take. But as we see a collapse in local journalism, I feel like this is one of the consequences of that loss of coverage. It's like something we know but refuse to do. Like we know that we need more local journalism so that they can dig into issues like this and see if constituents are actually being well served. But we don't do it. We don't fund it. We don't subscribe to it because ultimately nobody wants to read about those issues because they're not as sexy or inflammatory as national issues. But the stakes are so much higher when you only have national news outlets, then you end up missing something that's actually happening in your local community or something that would actually impact you because you're watching wall to wall coverage of a school board meeting somewhere in Tennessee where people are fighting about critical race theory, something that is not even really being discussed in your local schools. So you miss out and you're uninformed about the things that you actually need to be informed about. And the unfortunate result is that people that are relying on that coverage to inform their perspectives are going to be uninformed or unaware of things that are actually going to impact them. For example, I drive through Kevin McCarthy's district a couple of times a year. Bakersfield. That's right. I see you've had the pleasure. But anybody that's driven through Bakersfield or Kern County can tell you that things are pretty rough over there. And it makes me really sad because I know that a lot of people, for example, in agriculture, 
could really benefit from a little help in that area. They would benefit from something like the infrastructure bill. I mean, the whole area would. They really suffer from drought. Yet Kevin McCarthy is voting no on a bill that has money for water storage. And I mean, it's not just the water storage. It's like Kern County could potentially benefit from carbon capture facilities through some of the climate funding. That could be a game changer for that area that doesn't necessarily have a lot of economic engines. But the people in his district are missing that. You know, like, that is not the conversation. The conversation is about Biden's infrastructure bill and Kevin McCarthy sticking it to the libs. Right. It's it's a good example of how if the conversation is about who's winning or losing, you cannot learn anything. I'm sure there's conversation about water in Kern County. Right, like huge agricultural area. I don't know what the conversation sounds like. And I am not, you know, I'm not going to speculate as to how, how informed it is, but yeah, I suspect that that is one of many issues, meaning most or all issues that is politicized before you get to have a good conversation about it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like that's one example of a, of a right-leaning district, like, like an example, I think on the left maybe would be immigration. I have a lot of liberal friends who are kind of, so, you know, they know the things they want, which is people should be treated um, humanely at the border. Mm -hmm. There are people who say we should have open borders and everyone who wants to come here should be able to come here. But I suspect that there are many more people who would say we should rationalize the immigration system in some way so that Mm -hmm. it has greater capacity. And now this is like a lot of words, right? So no one is listening. People should be able to come, but we do need to have some sort of system to process and where are people going and we can't have a humanitarian crisis. And it's, oh, it's all very, turns out it's all very complicated. Who knew? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just think there are a ton of examples like that and you're right. It's because it's very hard to connect policy to what is happening in your life. And it's no one's job to do that for you. I think there are a lot of legislators who would like to do that, but they, they have almost, I don't want to say almost no staff, but yeah, they have small staffs and they have a lot of work. So who's going to do that for you? And give more money to politicians is not a popular message with people. (laughs) But it's sad because it's like if if you want things to get better, that is what needs to happen is either we need to increase the number of House members so that their districts can get smaller or you do need to give them money for staff. Yeah, I'll die on that hill. It's true. (laughs) It is. It is. I can't think of anything less popular than give more money to um, (laughs) members of Congress. But yeah, I mean, they work really hard. They care so hard. When I worked on the hill, I carried so hard about constituent issues that I was working on. Um, there are a lot of really, really good people who would like to do this work, but they don't have the capacity. They often do not even have time to become experts themselves in every single mm-hmm. issue. It's no one's job but you to figure out how this very complex piece of policy impacts your life. And that's where Civic Genius would like to come in and give you an opportunity to say, here's a really easy place to start. Like, just read this, just watch this video. It's five minutes, it's 10 minutes. You don't need to know everything. You just want to know a couple of points so you can sort of hang your, you know, I'm thinking of it as a rock climbing wall. Like, okay, I have a couple of things I can hold on here to understand, like I'm oriented. I'm not going to fall off this cliff in the middle of this conversation. And, um, and like, let's talk about it because often what happens. So I'm, you know, I, uh, worked for a democratic member of Congress. I'm from a really conservative part of Georgia. I'm from a family of Trump voters. My dad is here visiting me right now. And my dad and I have these conversations all the time where we start off like this. I'm (laughs) like, 
angry. A lot of fist clenching on camera right now. <laughs> and we're both like, okay, this is probably a good time to stop having this conversation. <laughs> and then, but we can't stop because we both love to talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. And then five minutes into it, we're like, oh, actually the problem here is that I was defending my sp- social place in the world before we even got to start talking about what this is about. And it turns out that if here's the center, we're actually just kind of both right on the other side of the center. Yes. Oh my gosh. I feel that so much is if everybody could just calm down. We are so moderate, so moderate, but it's like when you enter into something charged up over what you think it is, you're not listening for what it actually is. That's exactly right. And Yeah, I think a lot of people are very moderate. You know, a lot of people are not very moderate and that's fine. Like, you know, stand up and and say your piece. That's, you're entitled to do that. But you can do that and do it in the context of, okay, this is a democracy and nobody gets everything they want. And I'm willing to play ball here. Like reasonable people can disagree about how many dollars we should spend on something. That's a real conversation. And I'm hoping we can just keep facilitating more conversations like that, you know, to help people understand like, okay, come with your, come with your experience, tell us how things have gone, tell us how this impacts your life. And then let's talk about what the policies are. Let's talk about if these are even policies that the government should implement. Are these things that tech companies should be doing? Are there things that the government should be doing? Are there things that you and your neighbors should be doing? And are there ways that we can lift up, you know, the the way that individuals are playing into this whole ecosystem? Um, so I'm really excited to do that. And we're hoping that out of those dialogue groups will come actual recommendations and that people can use Civic Genius resources to go to their members of Congress. So if you've never done that before, I talk to people all the time who didn't know, you can just go visit your member of Congress, like request a meeting. And you might not meet with the member, you might meet with a staff member, which is great. And you'll have a wonderful conversation. But if you don't know how to ask for that meeting, we can tell you how to ask for that meeting. If you don't know how to make a good agenda for that meeting, we will tell you how to make a good agenda. If you're not sure how to follow up or you're not sure if you should go alone or with a group, we can help you with all of that. Um, And we're not telling you what to think. We're not telling what you know, telling you what to ask for when you go to that meeting. We just want you to have it. Um, And I feel completely confident that if you've gone through one of these nonpartisan dialogues, um, you'll go in with a pretty reasonable set of recommendations. I'm not afraid of what people will come up with because I see all the time that people come up with a bunch of reasonable things that are good for most of us. Do you think that your political worldview is influenced by confidence in the American people or a lack thereof? I'm totally influenced by confidence. Um, I think that to go back a little bit to when we were talking about journalism earlier, I think that there was a brand of journalism that became really popular in the kind of 2000s, 2010s, and continues today that is intended to be exclusionary. And it is intended to make you feel like you're either a political insider, like you are a political person who gets that stuff, or you're not, you're everybody else. Mm -hmm. And this has infiltrated the way that people think about where they fit in this whole system. And I meet people constantly who do not think of themselves as political people mm-hmm. who maybe, you know, they vote in a presidential, maybe they miss a local election, maybe they miss a primary if their kid is sick or if it's raining or they're, you know, you've got some other reason in your life. Um, and because because the discourse makes them feel like they don't know enough to participate, they don't really participate that much. 
And when I meet those people, when they're in the room with us, it's like, oh, here they are. Here are all of the people who could get this stuff done. Yeah. Like, hello, reasonable person (laughs) who just doesn't post on Facebook because you don't want to get into a fight with your Mm -hmm. neighbors. Like, that's a reasonable thing to think. Completely. Um, it gives me tons of confidence. Like we, depending which program we're doing, we have programs that are fairly heavily moderated. And then we have programs like this infrastructure thing we just did where the, the rooms were not moderated at all. Um, and everybody came up with very reasonable things. Everybody asked great questions. Nobody was a jerk. Mm-hmm. Like there's a rip cord. You can push a button in your room and say, Oh, we've got a troll in here. Like it didn't happen. Um, So yeah, I mean, are there loud, terrible jerks who don't know anything out there? Yes, obviously. Um, But they're just very loud. I don't think that there are nearly as many of them as we might think. And I think that if people felt more comfortable and more empowered to just say, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I think is reasonable. And I need some help talking it out and putting it into policy language so that I can get it to a decision maker there are a lot of those people. And I think that that's where the difference can come from. Making it convenient and actionable. Convenient and actionable. (laughs) Do you think that having to look at people while you say what you think has a big impact on the civility in the groups? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Our very first programs were all in person, which I loved. And then um, I don't know if you heard that there was a pandemic, so it was a whole thing. What? So we had to start doing them online and they actually still went, I think, quite well on Zoom because again, Mm -hmm. you can still see everybody. I think the gold standard is to do this in person, Um, but we have to balance that with the ability for people to actually take part in these events. So me personally, I have two little kids. The odds of me spending half a Saturday in a hotel ballroom, I'd love to. I just think it's not happening for some Mm -hmm. number of years. So we do want to balance with how can we use technology? Um to make this scalable and accessible to people? And how can we still have that personal touch that is really critical in these conversations? And they seem to work really well online. And yeah, I think seeing people's faces and hearing people's voices mm-hmm. is so critical because you can, you know, you can read my demographics and, you know, so like Jillian, she's 38 and she's white and she lives in, you know, outside of major city. And you're like, okay, I sort of get who that is. But if you can hear me and see me, now you can see that I'm a whole person and mm-hmm. I'm going to mention something offhand that you connect with. And now we've got something in common. I think it's huge. And yeah, I don't want to you know, beat up on social media too much because I'm an enthusiastic consumer of, of Twitter myself. And mm-hmm. I think that can be really, can be really valuable, but yeah, I, people do not really have those kinds of face-to-face connections in the way that we used to. We've been talking about bowling alone for 30 years at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, And our communities are politically really segregated, right? I mean, communities are segregated in a lot of ways, but we're just self-selecting even more closely Mm -hmm. uh, into communities where everyone politically is like us. And that's um, accelerating, not decelerating. So I think that we have to work to get out of that a little bit. Might not naturally see and hear people who think differently than us. Yeah, I I agree. I don't think that social media is necessarily the evil that people make it out to be. It's no angel, but I don't think it is the sole problem. It's just that like we are only talking about politics on social media because people don't want to open up a bare knuckle boxing ring 
in their community space you don't really know how it's gonna go so like a lot of people are not naturally that confrontational or they don't want to ruin everybody's time mm -hmm. by opening something up and then finding out that somebody you're hanging out with has some very extreme beliefs I love how you said they, there are people who don't want to ruin everybody's time. Cause I think it's so true. Like some people do, <laughs> we all know who those people are. And like most people don't, right? Most people, if they go to a party, don't want to start a fight. People mostly want to get along with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think it's on all of us to create more spaces where they can do that. I don't want to say, I almost said safe spaces and I'm doing air quotes again, but just to say like a space where you can ask a question and it's instead of immediately being called stupid or a racist or being told about the Atlantic article you didn't read oh to my just kind of oh get, my God. <laughs> I'm like, did you read the Atlantic article in chief over here? I'm also guilty of being a paid subscriber of that publication, and I do cite it frequently, but that that just hit very hard. <laughs> that was too close to home for both of us. It was a direct attack. <laughs> you should just stop what you're doing and buy everyone Atlantic subscription. I know, honestly. It's just such high-quality journalism, guys. High-quality journalism. <laughs> but, like, you can go, you know, if somebody landed on the social media feeds of many of my friends and you know, and asked a question that was not coming of total ignorance, but is not coming from a bad place. You're just trying to understand where is a safe place for you to ask a tough question without being called a name or told you're mm -hmm. stupid or excluded in some way or co-opted by some other ideology yeah. who's like, oh, do you think that you probably think this? Like, yes. oh, you're not sure about vaccines. You're also probably not sure about, you know, yeah. whatever. Or you're like, um, I just feel like the FDA rushed it. And then somebody will add on to your tweet. Like, you're right. Vaccines do cause autism. And you're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That is not, and it's, it's hard. Because it's also like you don't want to get branded like you're a racist for life. And it's like that is also extreme. And I think in a way we breed extremism by not allowing people to ask these type of questions. It's like your rough draft has to go somewhere. And when it only goes into what you perceive to be a safe space, which is one that fully agrees with you, your rough draft just becomes more extreme by the time it hits your final. Like, But he's like, hey, Jim, uh, I know you're hard on this. I know that... <laughs> that how this came out is not how you mean it. Um, but for a lot of people, that would really hurt them. That would like hurt a lot of people. And I know that you don't want that. And then Jim is like, explain. And then Jim can grow. But if you're like, Jim, shut up. You're a massive racist. Jim's like, oh my God, I can't ever say this out loud again. I guess I better turn to the dark corners of Reddit. Right, not gonna do that again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, let me start doing some research and then like, God knows where you're gonna end up there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're exactly, you're exactly right. It's like you have a rough draft and it becomes, I love that. And now, you know, like now, instead of defending what you think, you're defending your identity and you're defending your dignity mm -hmm. to be in the world and asking mm -hmm. questions and trying to understand. And that's completely different. Now you're acting differently. Right. If this were debate club in high school and we're practicing and there's no real, you know, there's no real outcome here. Mm -hmm. Um, you're going to talk differently. Or if it's just you and me, we're going to talk differently. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when you suddenly have to defend yourself in the public square, every time you want to understand Medicare, right? it's like, you're either going to drop out, mm -hmm. which is all of these people who we want to bring back into the process, or yeah, you're going to end up on social media where um, 
where whatever you're searching for, you're going to get pushed into more radical and more radical and more radical ideas. You're never yeah. going to answer your central question. Right. Um, so yeah, that's all to that's say. That's why you have you're to totally go to right. Civic Genius and attend, a, attend an event so that you can try out your rough draft. Ourcivicgenius.org. We've got a bunch of really good events coming up. Um, we spin out events anytime you guys want to learn something. So if there is a topic where you're like, I just need 20 minutes on the debt ceiling, they do. let me know. <laughs> they do. Um, Based on emails, <laughs> you do need 20 minutes on the debt ceiling. <laughs> I would be delighted to give you 20 minutes on the debt ceiling. Um, check out our social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, we're on Facebook, anything you want to know. Um, we can do a primer on it. We will answer your questions. If you've got questions that I can't answer, I will get you answers to those questions. We work with members of Congress and their staff and advocates all the time on these issues. Um, we've great relationships with tons of experts and want to bring all of that to you. Um, and I would also say if you are ready to take an idea to one of your legislators or one of your elected officials at any level of government, check us out. We have a bunch of great resources for how to do that. We can walk you through exactly how to get started, how to have the meeting, how to follow up, you know, how to write a good letter, how to write a good op-ed, all these brick and mortar pieces of being a good citizen um, we can help you out with. And uh, we also do a lot of workshops on those. So if you want to write an op-ed, but you want to sort of hear directly how to do it, you want to see some examples, you want to bring a draft and say, is this a good way to start? I will mm -hmm. tell you if that is a good way to start. I would be delighted to read your draft op-ed. Um, really want to be here for whatever kind of civic action people awesome. want to take. What is next um, for the infrastructure event or the research that you guys are doing? Yeah. Yeah. So we just, um, we're mostly wrapping it up right now. I was unfortunately not able to go to Washington DC last week, but a couple of our partners did. Um, and they presented on the Hill, the findings of this cool, um, initiative that we had just done. So they were talking to members of Congress and staff, uh, showing them the data that came out of these different initiatives. A lot of us who participated, who couldn't go at least sent videos. So the people there in the audience were able to see different faces, hear different voices, see that we are across the country um, and see that there was a real groundswell of people who wanna have deliberative conversations and come together across differences, find common ground and lift that up to their elected officials. So we're gonna have a report that wraps up everything that went on and I mm -hmm. hope we'll do this on another issue. Um, so please tell me what issue you wanna do this on. Um, we got a great turnout. I think that this will just continue to grow and grow. And um, I'm really excited about this huge coalition of groups and people out there who uh, wanna see this kind of thing happen. All right, guys, that's it for today. I just wanna say a quick thank you to Jillian for coming on the show and just being an absolute delight as well as a thank you to all of those that participated in America Talks infrastructure. Events like those combat polarization. We just, we need more opportunities to sit down together and talk about what matters. So if you participated in that event, thank you. And if you didn't, then it sounds to me like you need to hit up Jillian for ways to get involved and make sure that you don't miss the next one. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe like, rate, review, whatever options are available on the platform you're listening to it on. And I will see you guys next week. All right, that's it. Stay safe, guys. <laughs>